0: The level of energy illiteracy, it's on a pandemic level.
1: Like people just don't really have a very good understanding of where it comes from. Uh to use the word pandemic in twenty twenty one just so loosely, are you sure that you want to call it a pandemic?
0: That's it was a purposeful word.
2: Yeah. Wow. That's called impact, Josh.
1: Into some stuff here but uh,
3: sweet We testing first of all oh, I, need
1: to, I need to tell you something okay
3: tell so, me something
1: again this is the first time we're using three mics for three people because we shared one for the page episode yep and of course it was so complex trying to figure out how to set up three mics so that we would re- record them all at the same time mm-hmm. uh, so then I had to run home and of course to do that I had to use your keys to go down to the parkade to get out of your parkade where I parked illegally in like the little car wash zone mm-hmm now, the, the challenge is you're not supposed to park there at all the first time, right? Uh, and so when I go down there, on the dusty back window of my car, somebody had already written... I'd been there, like, what, an hour? Oh, my and gosh! And somebody from your building, somebody who's under the same roof as we're on, under right now... That
2: sounds accusatory to me, but yeah.
1: Not you. You didn't You didn't write this. <laughs> I chose this building. You chose the building, and you chose your neighbors. <laughs> you know what you're in for. <laughs> on the back window of my car, it said... Uh, read the sign you can't park here next time i'll tow you and my first thought was they must have the dirtiest finger <laughs> <laughs> like that's just not necessary man. they
2: use they they wrote that long of a sentence
1: it was quite long. it took me a lot of windshield wiper fluid to get rid of it
2: i am shocked that someone would do that
1: so what i was thinking and this is the reason i didn't park down there again Because it said, next time I'll tow you. And I was like, well, they didn't actually clarify whether I had a free pass for the evening. Or whether that was it. Or if
2: they really meant next time, next time. Here's the thing. You are not going to get a tow truck down under that garage door. They couldn't tow you if they tried. No way.
1: You're kidding. Because I parked outside. So you're saying that I should have just parked right back in there again? Because it would like, be
2: a gonna... whole it would be a whole scenario to get a tow truck down there, and I have had to deal with that because I have had a dead car down there that I had to like finagle out to, like the garage door to even have a hope.
3: Oh,
1: really? Of so you like towed. push it yourself, kind of thing? Mm. Like the tow truck could mm. not get down there. Mm. Okay, well if we take an intermission, I'm probably moving that car down there.
2: Did I say we will always have sirens? Is this gonna be our thing? is like sirens? Somebody put
1: a spoon in the Prosecco.
2: Yeah. <laughs> oh, we'll get there.
1: So, uh, Aaron's also here.
2: Oh my gosh. Hi, guys. Hey.
1: Aaron, uh, how would you describe yourself in four words? Ginger. Medium height. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's three words so far.
0: <laughs> I only get one more word. <laughs> Dry. Dry. <laughs>
1: amazing as opposed to moist hey
2: oh if you had used moist we would have just said well this has been great and uh we'll show you out
1: so aaron Mm -hmm. uh we're happy to have you here and it's and it's not a coincidence um that you're here uh because you know us both i do um but before we get into how you know us i guess maybe just a little bit about like what fires you up like what do you what are you most excited about? What are you working on? What are you, what are you thinking about most of your time? Hmm. That's a Good question.
0: Um, I think the two things that really drive me, like I love, so I have an organization called Energy Minute, which is, it's how I believe the media should be. So I spend a lot of time thinking about those two subjects. One is the media, and then two is Energy Minute, which surrounds energy, the environment and technology and so i spend the vast majority of my time thinking about those subjects geez that's
1: important stuff that's also complex that's not small stuff and
0: that's part of the issue is that it is it is a topic that most people don't know that much about but when you and most people don't care to learn that much because it's super dry no one really cares what a megawatt is <laughs> so
1: Dude, yeah. would they care if they knew or do they just have no idea what that is either
0: yeah, like I think you kind of get into these these really technical uh, discussions that honestly people, it just doesn't relate to people in their regular life, so it's hard for people to connect to. And so it's a super important topic right now. Obviously, climate change is kind of front and center of the news every day. Um, being in Alberta, energy is front and center of the economy, and and so the intersection of these two things is is kind of, one of the biggest topics that's, that's in Alberta right now. And for the level of understanding that a lot of people have about these two subjects,
1: it's, it's very difficult to have a really constructive dialogue. Cool. So I think we're going to try and dig into some of that today, but that sounds really heavy. And I feel like I just want to start it with something a little bit easier to get into.
2: Yeah. Like Wine.
1: We should drink some wine. <laughs> all right. Hey, Maddie, what are we drinking today?
2: Well, actually, Aaron brought this over, and it's from France. Mm.
1: French wine.
2: I think it's a Bordeaux, or is it a Bo- Beaujolais?
1: It's a Beaujolais.
2: It's a Beaujolais. Mm. See, I could tell. Obviously,
1: it wasn't. You were down I to two because two. it was French, hey? <laughs> <laughs> and you he chose the There's two French words you know. There's only
2: B wines in France. That's all. That's all they have there.
1: Then, if you want bubbles, then you go to C for champagne that's it
2: right yes exactly yeah do not cross go do not collect two hundred dollars go directly to champagne
0: I actually
1: <laughs> just spend two hundred dollars <laughs> yes okay so tell us about uh your tell us about why wine. you chose this wine
0: Aaron. yeah so first off i i've listened to the first few episodes and i love how you guys use wine so i was thinking this would be a perfect opportunity to showcase my wine game because i recently downloaded the app vivino and i which is great but i think that people use it wrong i think that you actually have to do the opposite way of how most people use it most people get the wine they drink it they look at vivino and and that kind of like determines how they view it
1: but wait for clarity you're saying you buy the wine then you Vivino and then you drink it, mm-hmm. and
2: okay. you sort of like self-justify how you view it based on what you've read. So you're just confirming. You're like, yes, yes, I did
0: feel that it was bold. Exactly. Wine to me, and and you're an
1: expert in I'm wine. I'm not
0: an expert. She,
1: she drinks enough of it that she could claim it. <laughs> I showed him
2: you, yeah, you <laughs> tell <me> the
1: wine. <laughs> did the extra racks come for the wine that you also bought to fill the extra racks yet?
2: They did. They did. did and I, I built g- them.
1: Congratulations. <laughs> so yes, I believe
0: that, I mean, wine, I think has a lot of power of suggestion. You drink wine and then someone says, can you taste the almonds? Can you taste blah, blah, blah. And then you can, whereas you, you couldn't before. So what I'm trying to do is do the opposite. So what we're going to do now is all three of us are going to drink wine and we are ourselves going to try to figure out what the wine is. Read Vivino. And one, you kind of lose the power of suggestion. And two, I'm absolutely terrible at actually tasting wine. And it is a way to get way better at it because you learn step by step.
2: That's right. That's right. We will find out very quickly who is full of shit.
1: What if Vivino's full of shit? Is anyone gonna call them out? Or do we, that's just it, the, that's Bible the Bible? That's the Bible, that's
2: crowd, that's like a, an entire crowd of pretentious wine people decided what that is and therefore it's democracy. Ty- it's
1: tyranny
0: of the majority for sure.
1: Okay. As long as we know the system we're living under, that's fine. All right,
0: so there, there's four categories at the top. For every Vivino app, you go through like, light, bold, smooth, tannic, dry, sweet, soft, acidic. So Let's go through this list. We're all going to say what it is, and, we're, and then we'll name the notes and see if we can figure it out. Love it. Okay.
2: Love it. Okay, what's right. the first category?
1: Light or bold? On, on a scale of one to ten, light is zero, bold is ten.
2: Mm.
3: Seven.
0: Seven, fairly bold. I'm going to go... I'm going to split the mill. I'm going to go 50-50. Five. Or wow. five. five. I was actually going to go
1: four. Ooh.
2: I love this. All what a right. range.
0: Smooth or tannic?
2: Josh doesn't understand tannins.
0: I don't understand tannins either. You <laughs> <laughs> all
1: know the they're made up. <laughs> they're <not>. It is <laughs> made okay, up for okay, sure. Okay, let me explain tannic
2: to you. If you're going and it sort of dries out your mouth a little bit when you drink it, that's tannins. You know when you eat a grape and the grape skin has that same effect that's why it's tannic is because they keep the skins on when they make red wine yeah
1: okay nobody eats the grape skins everybody peels their grapes you know that what? <laughs> jesus we I mean, knew it was bullshit
0: okay
2: all right okay tannic five
0: wow i was gonna give it a solid
1: eight on the tannic scale i'll go six because it sounds reasonable
2: this is amazing
0: all right dry sweet
2: oh dry
1: Maddie, you had a chance to actually have some again before you said that. I didn't need you it. Didn't. Mm. No. I didn't need it. it. It does this game
0: does promote heavy drinking of wine. <laughs> it's one of the benefits. <laughs> do a drinking. Most drinking yeah. games
1: do. Yeah.
2: Um, yeah. Oh, sorry, not just dry. g uh, two.
1: Mm. Oh, so two dries the zero. Okay. Uh, yeah, three. I'm gonna split the difference, two point five. I didn't know you could decimal this.
2: We've now Between turned this one from like a, a, a binary into like a, de- a yeah. 20 degree. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: and uh, softer acidic. This is one that I also, Ooh. I always mix up tannic and acidic. Like, if it's tannic, then I assume it's acidic, and I get it wrong.
2: So, the way that the saliva, like, pools in your mouth...
1: This is gross.
2: When you, No, this is how you do wine tasting! This is how you do systematic wine this tasting! Is, this
1: is things that people say when they don't actually swallow the wine, they spit it out.
2: That is the greatest travesty of wine courses. But to be fair, if you drank all of the wine that you were tasting, you'd be wasted before noon, and you'd have to get through the rest of the day. And it affects your ability to taste it at a certain point, right? Then your tongue is drunk and it doesn't know what it's doing. Anyways. Anyway, acid um it goes from soft. acidic Oh, does it go from soft to, to acidic? acidic? Um then 7.
1: 7 is the correct answer for me as well. Oh. I'm going to go 6 but
0: we're all pretty close here. So then the last one is the notes. So this is I mean this is the one that's I feel the most has the most power of suggestion.
1: So, what flavors you taste in or smelling? Wait, I think don't say them yet, because I want to think of a couple before you guys say anything, so that I'm not making, I'm not, like, tasting oh. what you taste. Mm.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, shouldn't we, like, go round table the other way at some point, or am I always having to start?
0: Mm. No. Actually, that's probably a good test. No, well, I'll go... go doesn't
2: seem super randomized to me.
0: Okay, <laughs> mm. <laughs> I know what I'm going to say, so well. Whatever you say, Maddie, the power of influence is going to have zero effect on me.
2: Okay, are we going like on the nose and then on the palate,
1: or Whoa. is this, like, no? Are you kidding? Oh, chill oh. out, <laughs> Aaron. Did you invite her?
2: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. I actually I smell um, like dark fruit, blackberry, um, and I actually kind of smell black licorice,
1: rhubarb, and strawberries.
0: I'm also getting some of those dark red fruits. I'm going to say maybe a dark cherry. And I'm getting like an oaky or leathery.
3: Mm. Oh, mm. yeah, okay. shoe leather. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Mm.
0: reminds me of the last time I licked a shoe. It's one of the categories that's in Vivino. Take it up with them. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. All right. Uh, let's, so
2: let's score ourselves?
0: All right. So the results are in. So on light to bold... The Josh said the lightest. I was in the middle and Maddie had the boldest at eight and it is very light. Yes. I know wine better than Maddie.
2: Amazing. Let's
0: not do anything else.
2: Amazing. This was
0: enough. (laughs) This was enough. Uh, Don't get ahead of yourself. On the (laughs) smooth Titanic level, we had Maddie the lowest and I was the highest and it was a very smooth. Mm. Great job, Maddie. On dry, we absolutely nailed this one. This was two, three, and two point five, and I'd say it's pretty close to two point five.
3: <laughs> we'll give that one to you.
0: did you say And uh, on the acidic scale, it was uh, very acidic, seven, seven, six. But we all go with that. And uh, and so I, I'm happy to announce the notes as well. the The top mentioned notes was. Strawberry, cherry, raspberry, points to Josh. I got strawberries. The least. next was plum, blackberry, and black currant. It's Maddie. Yeah, and the third was and I nailed it leather. Amazing. <laughs>
3: yes. Wait.
0: M- so Do it all? Com- combined, we make one great wine taster. <laughs> Three is always
1: better than one.
2: Yeah, totally. Because I don't
1: want to drink alone either, so I'd rather get all the notes with you guys. Cheers. Well, cheers. cheers. To that. Hey, smart.
0: And now, can you take taste the dark fruits or the strawberries?
2: I oh, I, totally. <laughs> so much leather. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's so leathery. What a
1: tertiary note.
2: It is.
1: Whatever, what? how would you it describe leather? It's true, and I still don't like that you think you gotta figure it out. <laughs> um, Aaron, before we get into the serious stuff, I know like you've got you've got some you've had some pretty cool adventures. I mean, you were drinking French wine. I was wondering hmm. if that's influenced by the the fact that you lived in France at one point and you're drawn to it.
0: That is exactly why. there? There's something that, uh, so you're right, I did live in France. I lived in Paris for about a year. I technically lived in the Cochrane of Paris for a year, uh, but it was, yeah, it was, it was great. And whenever I drink French wine, it's just, It kind of brings me back to that that time and and keeps things in perspective so 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 do you think that you could tell that it's
1: french if you were just like having a sip no no
2: (laughs) absolutely not (laughs) no sweet okay so we're gonna talk we're gonna talk about aaron because he does a lot of cool things and um i want to figure out how you got into the climate and energy space because a little birdie told me that you actually started in investment banking. <laughs> I want to know what that life was, how you got in, and how you got out, more importantly.
0: It's a really shitty life, to be honest. It's, uh, it, it's funny because you, you see movies like Wolf of Wall Street or... Um, there's just a lot of movies that really like celebrate the life
1: of... Of bankers and so you weren't throwing midgets covered in velcro at targets and no midgets just on fridays or not even then
0: <laughs> and no like literally ever there was did you hire midgets and pay them fair minimum wage no no like, no, like the it's everyone's too tired right like the, <laughs> the like it's
2: everyone is too tired to party and throw midgets wow
0: i, I mean the, you have thousand so i was an associate and they're your probably working till at least 11 every night. And at least one day, if not both days on the weekend. The analysts who are kind of like the the bottom level, they're usually working till 2 or 3 in the morning. That's not a once in a year thing. Like, they're doing that all the time. And, And I always respected the analysts for how hard they worked. And you just saw management—they'd run these guys into the ground and just not care about them.
1: Right? Yeah. Like they're—are they dispensable? Like if they quit, then you can just find another one. Ooh. I mean, it's a very like everyone in finance wants to go into
0: investment banking, and to be honest, like you learn a lot. You're—it's like a good boot camp for for business, and so so that's helpful um, for your career.
2: It tends to be. In my understanding, because I I didn't go into um, investment banking out Mm -hmm. of school um, and I took finance and it was this like coveted, like I interviewed for it. There was this like insane amount of competition to go and be an analyst in an investment bank, work 100 hours a week, never sleep, never see your family, never see your friends because you make a lot of money and you get enough credit for that amount of work that you're willing to do that you can kind of write your next ticket into mm-hmm. what you want to do after that. If you pay your dues in investment banking, it's like the world is your oyster because we know you can grind.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a pretty good summary. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, you see- That was
2: like the horror story, but I didn't know you know, what, it real- what reality was other than I never saw any of my friends that were in it.
0: Mm-hmm part of the reason that it just wasn't for me was it, it's not a team dynamic. It's mm. it's very it's a blood sport for sure and you're always trying to like outdo the people around you and and I'm someone who definitely operates in a much more team capacity and you work with the people who you're there with and and you live and die with them and
2: So what what got you into it? What made you want to go into it then?
0: It was kind of, I mean, I came back from my MBA in Paris and just looking for a job. And it was one of the, I knew I wanted to go into finance mm-hmm. and it was, it was a good opportunity to just learn the, the basics of finance and just like grind it out for a while.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so then what was the turning point where you were like, F this, I'm out.
0: Let's just leave it at it. It, it wasn't for me. It I, wasn't I, for you. I, yeah. I'm I was never meant to be an investment banker, and I, I kind of w- went in it with the expectation of being in it for about a year.
2: Yeah. So paid your dues. You paid your dues and you were done your time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: In your opinion, is anyone made to be an investment banker, or do they just have to give up a part of their soul in order to do it well?
0: Uh, <laughs> investment bankers, are they're a unique breed of people, for sure, because one, they can just grind for 90 hours constantly, every mm-hmm. week. And... Which is impressive enough, and the ones who I was working with, I have a tremendous amount of respect for just like the sheer capacity for memory and intelligence, and like it's a certain breed of people. But you have to be that breed of people, and it's like you kind of hear the same thing about about surgeons among mm-hmm. doctors. Like there's doctors, and then in the surgeons, like those are the intense people in that in that field, and, yeah. and and I feel like the investment bankers, they're they're that. You just have the there's something about you that keeps you fired up in a way that I think that's a
2: great equipment. That's one of that's a, that's, an equivalent that I haven't actually heard made that sort of surgeon of the doctors is the investment bankers mm-hmm. of the finance people, but that actually really checks out.
1: It's like, who's going to be offended by that? Doctors or like regular business Congratulations people? Congratulations to all of like you, the fact that you the can bankers grind like that. Like, like, oh, we're not surgeons. Totally, like, yeah. You know, Who, <laughs> who's offended?
2: It's like yeah. powerhouses on all sides, yeah, yeah. but it's like, you know, some of us would like to see our friends once in a while.
0: But it was while I was in Paris, uh, it was a good time to reflect, and it's yeah, I mean, an NBA is a great time to, to just think about what's important to you. And one of the things that has always bothered me, and bothered me at the time, and bothers me more now, is how divisive the media is. And you, you see it kind of play out in our in our world right now, where you have two sides who just hate each other, and and so it had kind of always been an idea that I was. Trying to, I was developing in my mind, and then we have a friend named Alex Shrike, who who also lives in Calgary. And when I came back here for the summer, I was I was talking to her about it, and an energy is something that I know well, and she knows well, and so if you can't take on the whole system, at least take on a little bit of something that uh, that you do know. So we we started this organization called Energy Minute, and and played around with a few ideas of of how it could be and it was, and we landed kind of on a structure right now. Um, So we have a weekly newsletter that comes out every Wednesday and then we have an infographic that comes out every Friday. And we just tried to imagine what media would be if it was non-polarizing. And and it's a a more challenging problem than than you would think.
2: Yeah, good luck.
1: (laughs) No doubt. So then you and Alex get together and you decide to form this organization with the goal of of creating a media outlet that does not have all of the seemingly inherent biases that are projected through mainstream media. Is that kind of the goal? Yeah, I, I think
0: it was more so just to talk about both energy and the environment in a way that you, you get agreement from both sides because because right now there's very clearly like a pro oil and gas group and a pro environment group and it is there is no agreement there is no working together and these are big problems there they don't have simple solutions and if you don't get people together you're, you're you're just fighting each other as opposed to fighting a bigger issue yeah
2: you like there is no there is no energy camp and an environment camp, it's like we need both. And the fact that nobody will come to the table together to figure out what that looks like is why nothing is progressing as quickly as it should be, given the human capital and brain power that we know to be had.
1: And who's responsible for like developing this content? It feels like they be you're just like sending somebody into the the war to go extract the meaning from both Good sides. Good luck, bring it together up, and like come up with some sort of compromise between the two? Or like, how do you, how can you look at it then and say, you know, if we have two polarized perspectives on the same issue that are actually both talking about totally different priorities, how can you come in with some sort of moderate opinion that doesn't compromise either of the truths? Yeah. So
0: that's a, that's a good point. So when I look at media, I often apply this acid test to different news organizations and it's, are they willing to give me a good story about someone that they disagree with? Mm. So, for example, you have Fox News. Are they willing to tell me a something good that Joe Biden did without adding all these extra things that kind of diminish that? And conversely, is CNN willing to tell me a good story th- about something good that Donald Trump did? If you do this, there is almost no media organization in the world that is willing to talk about the other side and say something positive and eventually people just kind of naturally choose the news organizations that that align with their own views but then you're losing half the perspective mm-hmm. and and so when we looked at the energy landscape you see that all the time you see people who are really really pro-environment and we'll we'll talk about lots of great stories in solar and wind and there are tons and you talk about good stories in oil and gas to be fair there's not that many right now it's going through a hard time but like you you don't really have an organization that's willing to say hey there's great things that wind and solar are doing and and oil and gas keeps chugging along so if if people are just getting their news from one side you're kind of missing half the story so here's a great example So in the United States over the past 10 years, you've seen the greatest reduction in emissions in human history
1: in the last 10 years. What do you you mean? Like we had, so there's, I've always thought about it as like, you have those those pre-industrial levels, right? Mm -hmm. that's how we kind of measure um, global climate and things like that. Now it's always like pre-industrial revolution. So have we just seen the largest reduction? Like it's just the largest reduction overall? Yeah,
0: so... So theirs grew and grew and grew, being one of the, large, the largest economy in the world. And then it peaked, and then, and then it started falling. And so over the last 10 years, you've had, from the peak, you've had the largest reduction in emissions in human history. And that's due to two different reasons. So part of it is you've seen an incredible investment in wind and solar, particularly in Texas and the Midwest. And on the other side, you've seen a huge amount of coal that has been displaced from natural gas. So the natural gas has been, um, it's been made available because of hydraulic fracturing or fracking, and especially in the Northwest of the United States. And so all of this natural gas is displacing the um, coal. And
2: coal is like the really problematic energy source in terms of energy and sustainability, right?
0: For sure. So so when you burn natural gas, it's about 50% of coal. And, and so when you look at the the total reduction that largest reduction in human history it's about 50-50 50% wind and solar 50% coal and natural gas mm. now you will not find and i've looked you'll not find a single media source that says well, you'll see one you'll see tons that say one you'll see tons that say the other you will not see one that says it's a 50-50 split and so every media source out there talking about energy and
1: the environment like they all fail that acid test
2: it's all bias they're all biased
1: so, so what, what's the genesis of the bias like why why wouldn't they value their media skills by saying look how well we presented the facts like why did that slant become so extreme that there was no room for moderation why right why can't they be moderate and be proud of yeah. the fact that they're actually capturing the reality of the situation mm. i mean that's a pretty
0: deep question um i think so news organizations right now are not incentivized by providing the best information yeah and you'll hear a lot of people saying like oh we just need to go back to the facts and like let's have a media source that presents the facts but like what has really happened is because of the way that especially social media is structured, where you are only presented information which reconfirms all your biases, this naturally leads to a situation that creates these boutique media sources that play to a specific demographic. Right. And so if you're trying to present something that is down the middle, it's actually much easier to present something on either side because engagement's much higher. And, and we can see this when we do our, um, like we have, we have some social media too. And when we present stuff and it's very like level and just like, check out this chart about this, it doesn't really get anywhere. But as soon as you take a punch, then everyone responds. So the natural incentive, there is to do that more because then you get more likes, you get more engagement, whether it's on Facebook or LinkedIn. LinkedIn and Facebook will then further promote your post because more people are engaging in it. Right. So there's a natural incentive built into the system to have these more incendiary, yeah. like titles or or just take shots near a news article because that's what sells
2: yeah it is it's this giant sort of sensationalized because no one has the attention span to do anything deeper that if you can't do it through clickbait and as you say incendiary sort of messaging then people aren't paying attention and so news got really wise to that really quickly because the money is their incentive and the more clicks that they're getting the more they're making. And that's why they're like, well, if we can get a lot of clicks from one half or one really uh, strong poll of this sort of spectrum of opinions, we know it's going to be intense and that's what we need.
1: Yeah. So it's almost like, so I've got two thoughts on that. The first thing I was thinking about was how, oh, well then this is like Facebook built the algorithms to fuck us over further. But then I was thinking, well, this probably still happened in even like newspapers in the 1800s because they were still ad based. There's still, you know, you're not going to even buy a newspaper unless it says things that you want to hear to some degree. And I think that's tied to the fact that there's not a lot of desire in human nature for moderation. Like we don't really like to sit with two things that seem like you you talk about these all the time. It's like Mm. cognitive dissonance, right? It's like to sit with two realities that are both true at the same time and to acknowledge the complexity of something we are answer seekers we want to understand we want to have an answer for something and the simpler the answer the happier we are to believe it
2: well we also love being told what we want to hear that's a that's a big issue is that you you alluded to kind of confirmation bias that people are seeking out sources of information and being fed sources Mm -hmm. of information as a result of all these algorithms that are already telling them what they think they know Mm -hmm. so facts are lost because you can find facts quote unquote facts and data to support pretty much any claim you would desire to make it exists out there that's how that's how research works
0: Imagine that Wikipedia worked this way. As you can tell from me, I'm a flat earther. <laughs> and, uh, and Maddie, I take you to be someone who believes that the earth is round.
2: I do. I do believe that.
1: Or spherical, I guess.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah, spherical.
1: Yeah, it's so, round so, and flat. I like both. So you I'm through.
2: moderate.
0: <laughs> oh, God. So, so let's say that Wikipedia worked in a way where it knew that you believe that the Earth to be spherical, and it knew that that I believe that the Earth to be flat. And when I went to type in the Earth into Wikipedia, that it presented me with a bunch of news articles that validated my views. It said, well, according to this study by this scientist that, you know, it, it works like this and there's some light test done in the Mojave Desert that clearly shows that the earth is flat. And then when you go to Wikipedia, it's a completely different page. And instead of all the stuff I was reading, then it says like, well, you know, NASA's gone to space, they looked back and took pictures and it was round. Keplerian motion only works if it's blah, blah, blah. And I think that that idea that Wikipedia would change the definition of the Earth depending on who's looking at it. I think that that's... Wait, how would it know that? How does it know which one that it's giving you. Well no, so Wikipedia doesn't do this. Oh, but okay. the point oh, of this man, Oh my god I you it, ma- this is the
2: this is the this is the uh this is the, exercise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, this is the
3: exercise
1: Josh is frantically right?
2: looking at Wikipedia to find out whether he's a flat earther or not.
1: Yeah <laughs> <laughs> I was like you're <laughs> kidding me this can't be true. <laughs> Sorry, I lost the plot.
0: No. So but I'm glad you had that reaction because essentially Wikipedia is the one of the only websites that doesn't work like that. Mm, so so when you speed. go on to Google and you go on to Facebook and you see that stream, it is curated based off of your views already. Other so,
1: things you've already clicked on, other things you've already engaged with.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So so when you look at, like, a pretty recent example is those those Capitol Hill riots when, um, when the Capitol Hill was stormed. So they did a bunch of interviews with the guys who did it. And I mean, there was a lot of people who talked about fraud. There was a lot of people there who were talking about how if Joe Biden ever got certified to to be president, that the Democrats are going to throw them, the right-leaning thinking people, um, that they're going to throw them in these re-education concentration camps, like the
1: Stalinist gulags. Well, let's. I mean, we've all brainstormed. Let's not take any ideas off the table yet.
2: (laughs) But they genuinely believe that this was what was at stake for them, is that they would be put into concentration camps.
0: Exactly. And so if that's what's in your mind, like if you genuinely believe that to be true, you'd probably think that storming the Capitol is probably the logical thing to do. So it's not really that these guys are illogical. It's that they've been fed information that's bad. It's garbage in and garbage out. And and that is a huge, huge issue. (laughs) On the Capitol Hill, just as a sidebar. So the media had a really interesting way of portraying the people who who stormed the Capitol. Mm-hmm. So on day one, they interviewed them and they're like, all right, these guys are like white, rural, very little to no college education. really like painting them out to be hillbillies. Mm-hmm. And then the next day they, it was the, it completely turned around and now they're insurrectionists. Now there's these like deep state people with like incredible levels of like planning and organization and, you kind of have like two ends of the spectrum there. And you're saying like, on one hand, they're the Beverly Hillbillies. Yeah. And on the other hand, they're Leon Trotsky.
2: Yeah, yeah, they're like maniacal geniuses. And <laughs> that this is all their orchestration. It's like, guys, <laughs> we know you hate them. That's all we know. At this point, we know you don't like them. We're not sure why.
1: Yeah, it's like the Illuminati somehow hired everybody from, like, the Midwest and was like, yep, these are our people.
2: And put one in a Viking hat. It was like, yeah,
0: go for it. You're the mascot. Amazing. (laughs) And and if you want to know what they are, they're hillbillies. Like, they stormed Mm -hmm. the Capitol, they captured the Capitol, which is, like, the thing that you do in all political games. And, And what did they do when they were there? They just... They, like, took selfies and, like, stole the podium. And, and I guess there was on, uh, on Bumble, the the night that that happened, There's a bunch of really, like, very intelligent women who jumped on there, changed their search settings to conservative, and got a bunch of these guys to, like, send the incriminating photos of being inside Capitol Hill, and they just forwarded them to the FBI.
2: Oh, what <laughs> that, that a to... power woman move.
1: It's like entrapment on a I weird social media that. level.
2: I love that. I mean, if the authorities aren't going to handle so it, no, we're going to have to take it into our own hands. And if we have to use dating apps, we will. But
1: you're telling me that you just like literally like beat the shit out of people like security guards, cops, like you've just, I mean, there's knives. I think there's like b- batons involved. I don't think anybody really had guns. I'm not really there sure what that. No,
2: there was very little weaponry at Which is also all
1: just so confusing like if I'm going to the White House to break in I'm not just gonna climb a fence and hope for the best But say you do all of that and you're completely idiotic and then you get inside Am I pulling out my phone to start matching with girls on like this testosterone high to just like see who I get
2: any idea? What hormones do to the male brain?
1: Uh, I mean, the, pretend you
2: don't. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: that—that's the like. These guys are hillbillies. Like they didn't. There wasn't a plan. They just stormed <laughs> it, took pictures, and
1: wow. So we've got we then, we just have to thank like twenty-seven-year-old like white women in Washington D.C. for uh, disarming the insurrectionists through like catfish photos. Yeah.
2: <laughs> thank you, all of you. This is where that. we come to. Thank you. God, I wouldn't even I don't think I would have even be creative enough to 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 do that. You
1: Can't make <laughs> the shit up.
2: Brilliant. Okay.
1: I want to talk about energy and climate, and the reason I don't think that we can dissociate the two is because the only reason we really talk about energy anymore automatically pulls in climate conversations, mm-hmm. and you can't talk about climate change without talking about energy. And so when people are like you know pro-oil or pro-environment at what point is the climate debate really just masquerading as an energy debate really because we can't actually control the climate so much as we control the energy and then is there room to be like pro-oil and pro-environment or are they diametrically opposed
0: i think you bring up a great point that they're very very connected and you can't talk about one without the other In terms of are they diametrically opposed, I don't think they are. So you can be pro-oil and
1: pro-environment?
0: One of the examples I always like to give is is Norway. So Norway is an oil-producing nation. It's actually very similar to Alberta, and it's very environmental. What it has done, and I think is really interesting, is it has taken all of the revenues that it's received from oil and is using it to pay for its transition. So, if you look at the then amount of the percentage of new vehicles which are electric by country, the the average globally is about 2.5 percent. So, 2.5 percent of new vehicles globally purchased are electric, but Norway that average is 54 percent. What? Wow. Over half their new
2: cars are electric?
0: Over half. And the reason that they've been able to do that is because they've taken their oil wealth and essentially funded the people to buy electric cars.
2: So the government is basically taxing that Mm -hmm. and siphoning that money directly to sustainable
0: solutions. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that Norway has done quite well is they have a, a large sovereign wealth fund so they've taken ah. a lot of those savings and have invested them, grown them.
2: Whoa! They're just a rich, rich country. <laughs> That's very... all that that is.
0: It just sounds like they're doing the right thing. But they also Amazing. produce a lot of oil. Like people they're an interesting nation because if you look at the amount of barrels per oil produced per person they're one of the top three or four countries in the world. So they rival the Middle Eastern countries. And so, and because they're a smaller nation of lower population, like it doesn't, that number, that doesn't get publicized that much. But if you're looking at a per person basis, they produce way more oil than Canada does. That is
2: incredible. So they are pumping out oil, pumping out sustainable solutions, and having that coexist
0: Happily, Mm -hmm. I mean, what they've essentially done is they've offered rebates to their citizens and said, okay, if you buy an electric car, here's $10,000. And you get free parking in all these places. You get free toll roads. They've essentially made it punitive for people to own gasoline cars. And so when I look at countries that are are doing an interesting approach to the transition, I, I, I can't help but look at Norway because they are an oil producing nation very like Norway and Alberta have a lot in common but they have some definite differences and they are using their oil wealth to make that transition whereas I think one of the things that Canada does poorly is it's it looks at its oil wealth as a negative thing and it tries to transition off of it it's the largest export that um, that Canada has, and so if you're if you're shutting that down, you really limit the ability to make that transition because the trend, the energy transition is incredibly expensive you so need to, expensive you need to so change expensive. infrastructure you need to change power sources you need to change vehicles you need to um, there, there's so many things that you need to do and if you are getting rid of your oil industry that who's oh, paying it's it's who's paying who's and paying for it? and so I wish that the Canadian government would would look abroad and, and perhaps see that as a model.
2: Wow, that's incredible.
1: I, I looked up an article, and it says that Alberta would have over 163 billion dollars had it done what Norway did as of 2015. So, basically, Norway's sovereign wealth fund. Norway's sovereign wealth fund just hit a grand total of one trillion dollars, and this was in 2017.
2: Wow. Uh-huh.
1: And just to comment on something you um,
0: mentioned earlier, there's kind of this view that Canada and the Scandinavian countries are are pretty diametrically different, and that those countries are extremely socialist. But Canada is a socialist democratic nation. Like if you're if you're trying to find a parallel to Canada, a lot of people just based off of geographies will say well we're pretty close to the states but
1: in actuality we're super close to the the scandinavian countries Mm -hmm. i agree with that i think what i do when i compare norway is not to canada but to alberta and alberta is not socialist in the way that canada would like it to be we seem to hate the fact that we're part of a socialist country that's where the actual contrast comes out in policy and you know social leaning um on a on a so on a federal level for each of them yeah totally totally you know lumps into the same category in a lot of ways but alberta we always for you know for better and mostly for worse we feel like we are different and deserve to be different Mm -hmm. from canada and from the rest of the scandinavian countries all of which policy probably would have us further ahead in the long run
2: in size Alberta compares to Norway, but when you extrapolate out what would be needed to be done by the entire country of Canada to get to what they're doing, that's where you get lost.
0: Yeah, I, I think you, you kind of have like two issues. One is you have um, a provincial government that doesn't treat the it doesn't tax as much as it could, and then you have a federal government that doesn't appreciate the oil and gas industry the way that it should. And it's, it's, it's trying to throw the baby out with the bathwater, in my opinion.
2: Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, totally agree.
1: So, I always find when you're comparing climate discussions to energy discussions, while environmentalists and, and you know, pro-oil camps both wouldn't articulate it this way, isn't the fundamental question that they both are asking or that we're all trying to answer without asking the question is, what is the appropriate level of environmental degradation that we should tolerate for the sake of energy? You bring up a good point in that
0: there is probably a limit where you say the the spending to fix this issue outweighs the damage that it would cause, right? Like if it's going to cause a hundred million of damage but it would cost a hundred billion to avoid that you just absorb the hundred million probably
1: right and at some point we have to say okay you know coal as a as an uh as a resource coal as a resource um is cheap but there's so much damage associated with it now we could have a functioning coal economy i think right but we've I think what we said is we would prefer not to because it's so damaging both in terms of extracting it and also the fossil fossil fuel burning to create CO2 in the atmosphere. Like, let's just not absorb that environmental cost anymore and let's lean towards something else. Whatever that Mm -hmm. something else might become over time. Mm -hmm. And on the environmental side, you're saying we don't want coal because, not because it's not a viable, you know, heat source. It's been great for a long time, but because there is there is a less damaging one, and less damaging equals more efficient. So we should consider, you know, from the from the energy side, they look at it as more efficient, and from the environmental side, you're looking at less damaging. But in reality, that's what we're focusing on, is, is those hidden costs mm-hmm. of either efficiency or environmental degradation that we can avoid.
2: Is that, is that thing that you're mentioning, the thing that... Um creates less environmental damage but is still efficient is that just natural gas
1: today yeah right I mean otherwise you get to something like uh wind power right yeah and we look at that and we say okay we can't live on that no we can't it's not efficient enough and also there are still environmental damage that's caused by it and I think that those aren't those the only two criteria that really guide this entire conversation
0: I think when you look at it, it's, and I I think that the whole discussion is really has this like good versus bad type Mm -hmm. of energy source. And like, you, you really have to think of it as a blend, right? Like the wind is actually an incredible source and yes, it only works when it's blowing, but for those times when it's blowing, it's amazing, and so then you just need to figure out what happens when it's not. Mm-hmm. Do you have a backup? Do you have a bunch of batteries? Do you have a natural gas plants? Do you have a nuclear plant? Um, and so I, I think that you kind of, and this is a good example where you you fall into these narratives where it's like, well, I'm on team wind, and so I'll only support the the development of wind. Like if there's a natural gas plant coming up, like it it. I, I don't support that, but you look at it as a whole system, and when you look at it as a system, there's no good and bad. You need to have a little bit of everything. So y- you brought up a really interesting point, Josh, about the 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 impacts which are not anticipated, and or not measured, or or not measured, and and so there's this. So here's a question for for you both: How many people do you think died as a result of the? Fukushima Daiichi power
1: plant meltdown. I mean, there's only like 20,000 people in Japan, right? (laughs) Uh, I don't know, like 500,000 people. I don't think it was a lot of people that died from it. Okay, 500,000? Did you
2: say 500,000 was not a lot of people? No, sorry,
1: 500 to 1,000. Okay, Okay,
2: perfect. Just Okay, perfect. Uh, I was going to say 1,500.
0: The answer is 1. What?! and And so one one person died from the direct impacts of it the they're estimating in the future there will probably be somewhere between zero and a thousand people who die in the long-term effects but 550-ish people died from how the the government reacted they evacuated a bunch of people and so something like 550 people Died just from the stress. Mostly old people. A lot of it from suicide, just from the from having too extreme of a reaction. Now, when you look at it globally, what happened? So both Japan and Germany decided to shut off their nuclear reactors because it was it was deemed that you know nuclear is too unsafe. This was in response to the public who said, we hate nuclear, look what just happened in Fukushima Daiichi. Mm. Now what happened- Pure, And That's like a purely emotional response and, to that point, And that's right? an emotional yeah. response. Yeah. So what happened to fill that void, you, you need to have what they call base load power, which is something which just runs constantly. And so they couldn't turn to wind, they couldn't t- turn to solar. Germany turned to coal, and because of the coal power generation, now they're estimating that, uh, 1,100 people every year will die because of the increased pollution because of coal. So what you've essentially had is this reaction where now more people are gonna die because of the move away from nuclear than has actually happened because of the direct
1: impact of the Fukushima event. This is all we, this is this shit that we come to hear. I appreciate that.
2: That's wild. What's interesting about that From what we know from research, so what we know is that when we're talking about emotional impact, the number of people affected makes a big difference on how people will react to that. So if you can put one person or one face to an event, it will be much more emotionally impactful and cause a surge in behavior versus a way, way broader, sort of more vague and arbitrary number of people that are affected by it because we're not good at numeracy. So it's like when you think about charities and they're like, look at little Tony. Tony needs It's a never home. Tony, it's Gugambe. Okay, <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I'm, I was, <laughs> whoever it is, when it's one child, you're like, I'm emotionally impacted, I want to help. When you give somebody a number, like 500,000 children died of X, Y, Z last year, you're like, that's a lot, oof, how sad. But I don't have a face to put to that. So to me, that's a great example of we've taken something, that actually the impact was rather small and we've extrapolated it because it was identifiable and now we've had this spillover effect that is out of control.
1: So there's this, th- there's this tendency for this to become such an emotional discussion, which I find in and of itself is interesting. Like there's some things that just aren't emotional discussions. Like, you know, we, we don't debate everything. Like, oh, where does our, f- where does our food come from?
2: Wait, nobody debates
1: that? Nobody, ca- nobody generally cares. There's not like a political discussion that points out that, you know, 30% of North America's food source comes from California. Nobody really gives a shit. We just go to the grocery store and we buy whatever there and we hope that other people are taking care of this. But then the common person about where our energy comes from has an extraordinary number of opinions, which is just kind of arbitrary at that point. But it becomes a place for a more toxic discourse then Because every common person seems to have an opinion, however unwell-informed we we are.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that that's... uh, So when we originally started Energy Minute, Alex and I had this view that we were going to be like this think tank, and we're going to talk about how quickly electric cars were going to come on. And as we started having discussions, we realized exactly what you just said, which was that the level of energy illiteracy, it's on a pandemic level. Like, the it, people just don't really have a very good understanding of where it comes from. Uh,
1: to use the word pandemic in 2021 just so loosely, are you sure that you want to call it a pandemic?
0: That's, it was a purposeful word. Yeah. Wow.
1: Okay. That's called
2: impact, Josh.
0: Striking language. We're
2: perking up ears all over these radio hmm. waves.
0: So we, we, we build these infographics, and we have a wide range of type and the ones that we always get the, the most interaction by a long shot is where we point out how energy is used in the day-to-day world. So we'll go through and go through camping equipment and people are surprised to find out how much of the equipment is made from petrochemicals. It's, it's made from vinyl and PVC and essentially everything that makes things stretchy and waterproof and great outdoors equipment. Like it's, it's all made from petrochemicals. Wait, that-
1: that's the stuff that like all, you know, the most nature-loving people use the most.
2: So all those outdoorsy people just using a bunch of petrochemicals? Although
1: I bet you it's mostly on a commercial level for industrial purposes and not sold out in mountain equipment co-op for like 12 bucks.
0: Well, and you guys bring up a really interesting topic, and this kind of actually relates back to an earlier episode, Manny, where you talked about being a vegetarian. Mm.
1: And... Oh, I'm not sure if I like this or hate it, but I'm excited. No,
0: you're going to hate it. So, I actually have a profound amount of respect for vegetarians. The reason for that is I think that the movement makes a lot of sense. So I think you said that you chose not to eat meat because of the impacts, the harm that it would do to the animals, right? Mm-hmm. And, and there's people who are vegetarian for a number of reasons. I eat meat. I don't. I make sure not to eat beef and lamb because those have the most profound environmental impacts. For for every pound of beef, it produces. Way more emissions than... Joy.
1: Uh, oh, emissions. Oh.
0: Emissions, yeah. yeah. But but essentially what people have done, uh, with respect to meat, ha- they've looked upstream in the production cycle and said, there is an impact there that I don't support. So... For you, it's the, the pain-caused animals. For me, it's the emissions. Now, what's interesting is that when you and I, when I consume meat, when you choose not to consume meat, the the impact isn't happening there. It's already happened. Now, I'd like to compare that or contrast that with oil consumption. So for oil consumption, the vast percentage of emissions which is that impact happens at the consumption level. It happens by the individual. So eighty to eighty five percent of emissions are happening when someone goes to turn on their car, someone flies to Europe, someone flies to Thailand, the jacket from Arcteryx gets made. But yeah. here here's where it gets interesting is that in the in for people who choose not to eat meat the response is i'm going to consume less so that impact doesn't happen what you see in oil consumption for all the petrochemicals and stuff like that it's the opposite people still consume they just blame the producer
2: that's right, right? that's right they're not actually actively doing much different than pointing fingers what's interesting about about this kind of this kind of sidebar is that um I was going my, one of one of my questions was you know what's the what's the kind of single most impactful decision that we can make as people to kind of decrease our impact to the climate and and I and I don't know if I'm wrong about this but I think making dietary choices that are vegetarian or decreasing meat consumption make a monumental impact at scale. So when you're talking about, you know, this on-off switch, it's like the, the animals have already been killed. They're already, you need to have a critical mass to have that make the impact you want versus turning on and off your power or not buying your tents to go camping.
0: Okay. So what is the question? What's the most impactful thing you can do? And, and I think that you're... Definitely right that that not eating meat has a huge impact. So, shameless plug: if you go to www.energyman.ca, we've built a personal carbon calculator. You can add all the fact, all the things you've done in the last year, and it shows you where is your carbon footprint coming from. And one of the most surprising things is that the largest carbon footprint that most of us have is travel Mm. and globally it's not that much like it's five to seven percent for aviation but because aviation only happens for such it happens for wealthy people the impact of an individual who flies to europe or flies to thailand is massive and so the you can cut out beef from your diet Flying to Thailand kind of erases that. Now, the thing, like, a lot of people are trying to flight shame. And and I'm not trying to do that, because I I think there's a lot of benefits to flight. And I'm my whole purpose is just, I, I like people to know. Now, the problem that I have is, like, if people don't know and they make their decisions and they point at ExxonMobil, that's okay. If... You know that flight and international travel is the biggest carbon impact that you can have as an individual, and you know it's on you. Are those emissions still to be blamed on ExxonMobil? Like, I think one of the biggest issues that we have right now is personal accountability. There's too many people out there who are saying, it's not me, it's this big corporation, they're the issue. But when people take a good hard look in the mirror, well, the, they're not going to like the answers because the things that you have to do, I don't want to give up travel. No one really wants to give it up. But those are the things that if you want to have a low-carbon world for now, that's what you got to give up. And if you're going out there saying hashtag climate crisis and then you take a trip off to Europe, is that really on ExxonMobil? And... I'll leave that as an open-ended question, but you know where my thoughts on that.
2: Totally. I mean, you were, you were alluding to cognitive dissonance, right? And it's like, what do I, what do I say? And how do I behave are extraordinarily different things for a lot of people. And there's a great amount of discomfort in identifying as someone who cares about things and then behaving in a completely different way. Like that's exactly why we're in this issue.
1: Yeah. I want to, I would say that I agree with all of that and if we live with being a hypocrite in some ways it shouldn't discredit you know the purpose of any specific movement however a lot of times in these debates especially online it's like uh hey i really you know i really believe in the environment i think like leonardo dicaprio gets this a lot i really want to do good work for the environment like we really need to like explore this and then people are like yeah but you fly private And it's like, yes, there's probably like also a cost benefit analysis that could go into that where it's like there's a purpose for the ability to travel faster for people that are actually trying to make a bigger difference. Like we all know that you can do greater good and greater harm, but it can be proportionately greater in both situations. And there's like room for that. Mm -hmm. So it's like if we're if we're doing something, I mean, everything is damaging. Everything we do is damaging, and we're all going to die, and the planet's going to burn up anyway. Like it's wow, almost
2: wow. Like wow. Well, wow, we are wow, right. Wow. Wow. We were having a good time.
1: I know. I we know. We were
2: having a good time.
1: But like, if if so many of things are already have so much momentum behind them, it's almost like at some point you have to say, well, what do you want Leonardo to, to, to like take a horse, right, and feed it organic grain-fed, you know, hay? Like at some point you have to say we're trying to change things from the inside and there's going to be a level of, and I don't even look at it as hypocrisy, but it is dissonance where you have like this clumsy transition phase between anything. So if you want purely environmentally renewable resources and we're using fossil fuels, there's going to be this painful transition where it's like, well, we're using some and we're kind of using the other and we're using the bad ones to support the benefit of the good ones, kind of in the same way that Norway, you know, makes all of this money on oil and gas and then invest it into something better. It's like that is the yeah. process that has to happen. So every time the argument against flying to Europe or uh, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio using private jets it's like at some point we have to say, well, this is what we built. This is the infrastructure. We can agree that it works today and it won't work later. We have to use what we have today. We have to push for what's going to come in the future. And we can't hold everybody as a hypocrite, including the people that buy, you know, carabiners and tents and go out into the mountains with their mm-hmm. waterproof tents, right? That can't all be, we can't all just be pointing the finger at hypocrisy and, and just... Personal blame, personal responsibility. When we're all working, like and we're using a MacBook that probably, like at least one person from China, like died making, right? Wow. Like, well, I don't know fuck. where yours came from. No, this is what I'm saying. This is the narrative yeah, yeah. that we tell ourselves. Yeah. So do I? Do I not use computers? And do and like just at that point, you just kind of slowly retreat from the entire society we built because you say, okay, this is this is it. Like I can't have any of these things because they are tainted with bad morality. So you just slowly retreat to the point where there's nothing actually left at your disposal to A, live a life, B, communicate what you actually think is important to other people and change minds overall. So I think it just has to be acknowledged as like there will be hypocrisy, there will be contradictions in everybody's actions as we make change from the former to the latter.
2: Yeah, I agree with that. I think I think maybe where the hypocrisy the hip- Where it comes from, like, a dissonance versus hypocrisy thing is that if you are spouting off at other people for doing the things that you are doing, that makes you a hypocrite, right? If you are self-aware enough to say, this is the best that we have, we are using the tools that we have to get to a better place, and yes, I am imperfect, then that's fine, right? It's when when it comes from this, like, holier-than-thou place where it's like, Do you really think you're living a life that doesn't have an impact? Are you really believing that?
1: Yeah. So I think if you were to strip away everything that I just said and really crystallize the value of what you said, it's we have to be able to separate good arguments from the person who says the argument. So you can even even a bad person by your own definition might make a good argument. We need to be able to look at the actual idea that they're suggesting and validate it on its own merits instead of having to tie it back to the person who made the argument and their lifestyle. If you're a complete hypocrite and you come up with the most brilliant way to move to electric vehicles in half the time but then we're like but he drives a 67 Camaro so fuck his ideas, then we're not actually going to get anywhere. Like, you have to be able to look at the ideas without the person attached to it in order to make progress. Certainly over...
0: course of our conversation i've i've been hammering on environmentalists a little bit but i want you to know that my cynicism is very much bipartisan so if you look at the two leading figures in canada for climate change for one of which is the honorable catherine mckenna who was the she was the minister of the environment and now is minister of infrastructure i probably got those titles wrong but. You get the point. The other one is Greta Thunberg. If you go on the internet, there's some pretty horrifying things there. Mm. If you look at the comments section in articles about Catherine McKenna and Greta Thunberg, it is among the most horrifying things on it's the hor- internet. horrendous. It's really scary. It, it, it's, it's horrible. The Catherine McKenna has been given the moniker Climate Barbie. Very clearly sexist, very clearly misogynistic. And you're essentially devaluing someone's values and their ideas down to her looks. Like you can't, you you don't get much lower than that. And yet you see it all the time. And when the liberals won in the last election, she had the word bitch inscribed in spray paint over her door. Like you can't, the, the level that this is, the level of pettiness that this has come to is saddening. Now you go to Greta Thunberg and I mean, she's well-known to have autism. You have adult males who are sitting in comment boards making fun of a 15-year-old, I guess she's older now, but 17-year-old girl with autism. We're doing it then, too. And yeah. Not and, sure the age is relevant in the comments. That we're no, made, but yeah, a, totally. a teenager. Yeah. And, yeah. Imagine
2: a child, a literal child.
0: A yeah. literal child with autism. And, and people are choosing that as their, their springboard to, to take a shot.
1: And it's not even, it's not even men. It's also like, I I remember scrolling through one horrified. I couldn't believe it. But like, it was like a 45 year old, 50 year old woman who was like, somebody needs to strangle her and put her out of her misery for looking so ugly. That's your comment on, on the discourse of climate change and energy choices. (laughs) What
2: I really, I mean, I think, I think, and for me, one of, one of the things that makes her such a tragic character of the commentary on our society is that she has been upheld by other adults as the face for this thing that we need to do and i don't think that that's an appropriate position to put her in
1: kind of like justin bieber you know ruined his life when he got famous too like it's just hard it's just hard on on you know, people underage to be in that kind of spot. Yeah, it's
2: like she's she's managed by adults. She's handled by adults who know better than to put her in this position and shouldn't be doing so. Uh,
1: but what's the line then, right? It's like at what point is somebody emotionally mature enough that if she really believes in this, should we silence her? I mean, that's probably a separate issue. But
2: no, and it, I don't think I don't think that it's appropriate to silence her. But I think to continue to like to just blast her in front of stuff over and over and over. Is not in the best interest of her as an individual.
0: I mean, she's for sure. She's her image has been exploited, but she's a remarkable person, right? Yeah. She's at fifteen. She did uh, Fridays for Future, and and for the record, like I don't, uh, I don't fully agree with everything that she says, but I can't help but admire this girl who believed in something, and every Friday she went out and she was the first one, and now you kind of have this whole generation who has this figurehead. And I mean, I would love to sit down and debate her and and challenge some of her ideas, but I, I think that she represents something that's interesting. In one hand, she represents this like amazing next generation hopefulness for the future and that they want change, and at the same time, it highlights the worst parts of everyone who does not support the
1: environmental movement so that's kind of what i wanted to talk about is like the the toxicity of the political discourse um and you know those critical of the current state of green energy so there is a there's a documentary that came out which we're not going to get like you know totally Mm -hmm. into called planet of the humans um michael moore came out with it and the if nothing else it just generated such a conversation around the the quality of the facts and the relevance of the facts and the accuracy of the facts that he presented um and I looked into it and quite frankly most of it wasn't that far off from what uh other you know other reputable sources say he just had a bit more of a sad dramatic spin on it and that caused people to be even more emotionally upset which then made them respond negatively to the to the information that he was trying to to provide so those critical of like current the current state of green energy they're focusing on you know the policy or the fact that electric vehicles use carbon-based power to recharge themselves so that's not actually a good substitute for green energy whatsoever because we're still just using coal or natural gas and then you know there's these negative environmental impacts of uh of green energy sources such as you know they've said over oh, clearing you know forests to create space for Uh, Solar panels or or uh, you know wind farms kill birds or uh, hydroelectric dams are bad for fish spawning, Um, and it kind of feels like it's like if you're gonna focus on all of these negative negative environmental impacts or like the problems with something that's in its birth and in its infancy, it's kind of like I I don't know like uh, it's like the backseat driver in your car telling you like all of the things you're doing wrong as you're learning to drive, and it's like. K, fair, we could be better, but we put this thing on the top of our car to say like student driver, we're figuring it out. You know, like at some point we have to say this is where things are going. If we're just going to sit here and trash talk it, then we're not actually part of any sort of solution whatsoever. The problems are well known, they should be talked about, but at some point we have to decide Things do need to change. There might be a better way to do things than we're used to doing them. And if we can't have the curiosity to look for progress, then we're actually just stuck so far in the past that I think that we're kind of like no longer part of a reasonable discourse. Is that too polarizing for, uh, for Energy Minute? Hmm. The,
0: the Michael Moore documentary, I think that it, it's interesting because that kind of shed a different light on the renewable energy sector, because you kind of get, this goes back to this like good energy source, bad energy source. And so long as that's the discourse, it, it's very difficult to move ahead. But, but you're right, there, there are things that, y- it's clear the direction we're headed. We're headed into a transition. We're gonna be off fossil fuels. But that transition, it, it's not gonna take years. It's not even gonna take decades. It'll take a lifetime transitions and they've happened in the past take forever they they take the fastest transition in in human history was japan and when it transitioned from from being like a feudalist agrarian society to to its modern society and i won't get into the reasons but the fastest transition in history happened in like 45 years it's a society that all the carrots and sticks were there to build to have change, and it's just you have all this infrastructure, right? Like you have homes that are built with natural gas heating, and you have pipelines that produce the energy that are used to heat and electrify our homes. Like it's the whole system to fully replace and switch is a long system. Yeah. Even if you look at cars, cars if you buy them today they're probably still going to be on the road 25 years from now. Yeah. So a car bought today will still be consuming oil 25 years from now. So so these are the systems that we're trying to replace are getting replaced and you're right. There it's a great point that we're going through a lot of speed bumps. I think in one sense you have to look at it as we're going through this rapid transition. And two, that it's going to take a long time. And uh, even though Alberta kind of has this bad reputation of being very conservative, very uh, slow to change, what I've seen from my old colleagues who were geologists and engineers and stuff in the oil and gas industry is they've gone back and, and gotten retrained in in sustainability and environment and, and new technologies. And so I think that... This transition that you're going to see is actually going to happen in Alberta because you have all of these engineers, Brilliant who have people. who That's are talent is and it's where the talent is and and so I feel like we're really going to be a big part of the center of the future and you're going to have this growth in all these alternative forms over the next fifty years while you're still transitioning off oil you're probably going to have a bunch of oil companies too uh,
1: you know this pro oil culture that we live in you know there's always like this talk about like jobs well we have to have jobs well we have to have more jobs we've got all this empty space downtown we need to fill it up we need to get people back to work and oil and gas is the easiest way so let's make it as cheap as we can and i just refer to the like it's like job zombies it's like that's all we're interested in uh and it's just we need more jobs and that's like a political platform today and i'm thinking like as if we can't employ people to clean up the fucking mess we've made as if that's not a viable way to like put money into figuring out how to fix some of the problems that we've created because there's so many and we all benefit as a result of those. So I don't know why that's like, why jobs, it's like, yeah, it's, it's like what you said, it's like we need to look at the retraining to say, if you've got all of these people that, are use, that want a job, except the needs and the demands have changed, then we do need to go through that retraining phase. But let's not just focus on the jobs that used to be, let's focus on the jobs that actually get us through somebody's next career so that we're investing in the education they need now to make the change that we need in the future.
0: I think that's like a good macro look at it. I think when you ask a family that has a mortgage, it's harder to justify, right? Like you're saying, well, you're just a part of, you're just kind of a part of the the sands of time and this is you're an unfortunate person who's been caught up in this and in the end i mean yeah it's it's hard to it's hard to make that transition but if you're a family that has a mortgage and has kids and you're trying to put food on the table for kids the uh, the prospect of losing your job over a uh, something that's greater than you, like it's kinda of goes down to that that hierarchy of basic needs. And if you're not able to fill that out, then it doesn't really matter. Like a climate change yeah. our minds aren't really built we're to not built for this
2: level of intellectualization on, on most on most cases. We're really not built to be like, well it's for the greater and the mm. higher and it's like I, I have to live today. And I think that's where a lot of people are coming from is that we we have a really hard time seeing outside of our own selves. And yeah, so it's, it's, it's a, it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant concept. Um, but that like transition of, of literally even what you say is job retraining. It's like, imagine if the thing the that you distress. do, yeah. imagine if the thing that you do is pulled out from under you. i I think all of us are sitting quite well in terms of. We're not having our livelihoods pulled directly out from under us as a result of what's happening in the world. And I think that the amount of empathy that it takes to try to put ourselves in those shoes is, is something that we need to all be thinking about. Because then it becomes very, very real for people. And then it doesn't become so great or good.
1: No, that's true. But doesn't that mean that we've all kind of starved ourselves in, into a situation where we're trying to just fulfill... Maslow's hierarchy of needs in like 2021 in Calgary and people are so desperate to have a job for their family that there's no sort of collective conscious anymore. It's like, we've just, we've turned into people that need to get a paycheck in order to survive. And like, okay, so maybe I'm talking about a problem that's much larger than even oil and gas at that point. But it's like, every time there's transition, every time there's transition, there's people that are left behind and there's people that are early adopters that move on to the next thing. This is, this is what happens every time that there's change. And if you, if you fall behind, you're left behind. And that's just how change happens. So there's going to be a cost of transition, but that does not negate the value of the transition. I bet you if you look back at whenever Norway, whenever Norway put these policies in, in place, Probably the rich were like, are you kidding? You're going to tax, there's going to be wealth tax, property tax, income tax. Like this is bullshit. But then when you actually take those dollars and you put them to work, suddenly the whole country's better off. And maybe there's still people there that are like, you know what, I don't, I do not like this tax, but I do appreciate this, you know, standard of living that we have generally. I don't know.
2: Yeah. I mean, then what you take it to is you take it to a policy level and then you take it to a government level and then you take it to what is the overarching opinion of the government that is in power um, and who have we elected to make those kinds of decisions. And Nori has a very different one, I think, than Alberta does. No, but but then it becomes a really fundamental question. I mean, it becomes another another layer up of what have we decided that we all stand for as a country? And it's like that becomes more collective. Um, but if you're if you if you can't trust the structures that are in existence and the institutions to keep you going, if you need to make that transition as a person, then you're going to resist it.
0: Having worked in the Canadian oil and gas industry, and, and so now I work, when I'm not doing energy management, I work in management consulting. And so I do a fair amount of work um, with that company trying to develop a uh, natural gas company in asia and it's very interesting to see the comparisons and the policies between canada and asia mm-hmm. so in canada it it for sure took a while for people to come around but now everyone is laser focused on game okay, what can we do to reduce emissions what can we do to make this make our barrels cleaner make everything better, lower emissions. Like we, we want to be a part of this solution. And when we look at the policies over in Asia, they don't care. I won't specify that country because they're probably listening to me. We got a letter from the minister of energy from, from one of these Asian countries. And it said, whatever you do, ramp up oil and gas production. We will do anything to support you. You want the the laws change, you want the regulations changed. We will do it. Just ramp up production. The only time that it mentioned climate in the whole like five page letter was saying we want to make the business climate such that you can invest more in oil and gas. So Whoa. what you see and so this is where you kind of see this like insular discussion where it's you kind of come down on your own people and you're you're almost taking the best players off the team you it's easy to say okay well we shouldn't produce natural gas natural gas is going to be produced regardless because asia needs it they need it for air conditioners they need it for heating as they move into more of a middle class society the demand for natural gas is through the roof and so to say, well, we should stop producing natural gas and not produce it major, when what you see in Calgary is you see some of the the most devoted people who genuinely care about the environment. People who go out to the mountains, who hike, who ski, who love the outdoors, and people who are genuinely recognize the issue and who genuinely want to see change. And so does see that contrast. And it's hard because when you're in Canada, you don't see it. But if you, if you go to other industries, you can very clearly see that the way that Canadians approach their business, it may not in the news look like it's pro-environment, but the people here really care. And, 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 yes, I, and I really do admire the people in, in Canada for, the, for the, the shift that they've taken and, and how much they're trying to, to reduce their impact.
1: Yeah, like I have heard that we have some of the most like protectionist legislation for protecting the environment when it comes to, you know, drilling oil sands. And I've also heard that we have the worst. So it just becomes one of those things where I'm caught in that situation where I don't really know how to compare our legislation versus an Asian country or the US or even Norway without going through the literal legislation myself and trying to think through the pros and cons because you just don't know how much of what is out there is actually the product not of knowledge but of political spin Mm -hmm.
2: which really brings us it circles us all the way back to what we were talking to at the beginning when aaron's like we're all on one side of the spectrum how do we all come to the table and it starts with more objective news sources and more objective sources of information or maybe the conscious curation of your own content consumption, which is each person looking at themselves and saying, am I actively seeking out information that goes against what my natural first instinct belief might be? Am I actively trying to get myself the whole story? Or am I just going on whatever uh, YouTube autoplay next video because it already oh, knows what I want to see next? Like. This this isn't, it's a global and a very high-level issue, but it's actually a really individual action that it takes, which is to take yourself out of the echo chambers that we've been talking about and to actually start to try and engage with information that might feel uncomfortable to you. And whether it's right or wrong is actually sort of irrelevant. Totally. It just has to be different than yours.
1: Yeah. Well, and I also think that, like, there's, we need to create a, a safer space, whether it's media or social media or like sitting around doing this, like there has to be a safe space for people to say how they feel. And then for other people without being like, you're just a piece of shit for having said that instead of that, it's like, okay, let's talk about that. Let's actually engage with that. And let's see how the data plays out and have intelligent people in the room who can, who can share the facts without needing to turn it into some sort of shame spiral on people that literally just believe what they believe because of the information to be given, circling back to what you said about the people that attacked the White House, right? They don't even feel that they attacked the White House. They feel like their freedom, like America was under attack and they needed to save it by going into the White House and taking back what was being lost, right? Like it's these crazy different perspectives that if we can't find some sort of emotionally safe middle ground, some sort of neutrality to be able to say, tell me what you think. Tell me how bad you think oil and gas is. Tell me how good you think oil and gas is. And to be able to, to suss out what is actually defendable with data, if we can't do that, then we're never gonna get anywhere no matter how right we think we are or how wrong we think somebody else is.
0: I'd like to shamelessly plug energy minute at this exact moment
1: this feels like the right time to tell us about your newsletter and how you can subscribe
2: which will be linked all over anywhere that we can put it it'll be in the show description it'll be all over our social media this is this is the newsletter I didn't even know about this and it it is now taking up three quarters of my inbox because that's how that's how few emails I have in my inbox and how many I keep right at the front
1: I don't get it. Do you not read it? Delete it? What are you doing? Do not get emails? No, even, no you no, keep no. them. Do you want me to get you some frames? We can print them.
2: They're that good. I'm like I need to go back to this cuz I need to remember to talk about this.
1: Actually, they are. You could you could read the Energy Minute newsletter, and I've been subscribed for probably, I don't know, 6 months. Um and every time I read it, I'm like, "Oh shit, nobody's talking about this." And yet it seems like everybody's talking about it, but poorly.
2: Yeah. So tell us where we can find you, how we can find you, what the best thing we can do today is.
0: The website is www.energyminute.ca, and there's a subscribe button. And I'll tell you a little bit about our philosophy and how we approach news. And you hear a lot of people who say like, all right, let's just get back to the facts. But the facts are super boring. No one ever consumes the facts, so the reason that media does well is because it's like, it's engaging because it like it's polarizing. So we take the opposite approach. For our newsletter, we just use humor. We just like throw in like pop culture references. I think we got you because we talked about it was Penguins, Penguin Awareness it was like, Day. It was like
2: Penguin Awareness Day. I was like, well, I'm subscribed and sold, and there were also puns.
1: Like, what more do you want? Penguins and puns. Come on.
0: That's true. We, we essentially took all of our funniest friends, and I'll call them out. Chip Georgescu, Griffin Smith, Alex Drake. So we're the, we're the four writers, and then we have an incredible... And this is actually this, our secret sauce, is our researcher named Michelle Heath. And she is the best researcher I have ever met. And she knows every topic, and she can think through data. And because of that, we produce an infographic every single week on random subjects. And we make that into art because no one likes a basic chart. They want to see something that's interesting. They want to see a bar chart that's not a bar chart. And so that's what we do. And so we just, we try to take information and as opposed to making it polarizing, we either make it funny or make it interesting. And that's the whole that. And so when I view how the news, which is information should be, that's how it should be. Just make it so that people can consume it and they don't hate each other. Wow. Wow. I know that's a pretty radical idea. Yeah. It's going to work.
1: Yeah, I love it. We're in. Um, I guess what I'm hearing from this is that we actually interviewed the wrong person because we need to be talking to Michelle Heath about everything. <laughs> she <laughs> is the far
0: smarter person <laughs> in energy man for sure. All right. Well, we'll get Sorry you, you got the donkey next. in the group. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Aaron, this has been illuminating and so refreshing to know that there is somewhere that we can all land um, and get at some kind of higher truth in all of these discussions, but uh, yeah, it's been a pleasure, and uh, we're super excited to, to have had you here, and to uh, promo your whole
1: movement. Yeah, he's smart, he's tall, he's kind of famous, he's ginger, and uh, I'd rate him a 4.8 on the Vino.
2: Yeah, 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 very expensive. Very Ladies. expensive. Ladies. <laughs> <laughs> You can get into RDMs, we'll pass them along.
0: Thank you.
1: (laughs) Thank you. All right, that's good enough for now, thanks.